Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to AskBillNye.com, your homepage there, AskBillNye.com. You can also check me out on all the social media that the kids are using to find out about our upcoming guests. But today, I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and really everybody, dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. Greetings, greetings. Sometime back, before we were doing this show, uh, you and I were doing a show on Netflix called Bill Nye Saves the World. And on one of the episodes, we were talking about evolution, and I got to handle a replica of this incredible transitional life form. So halfway between an aquatic animal and a land animal is the first true species to to make its home on land. Now we have on this very show, the man who discovered this fossil, who uncovered one of these key transitions in the history of life on earth. How amazing is it that we get to do this? It is. It really is fantastic. Yes, my friends, everyone, our guest today is Professor Neil Shubin. He is a paleontologist and evolutionary biologist at the University of Chicago. His books include Your Inner Fish, A Journey into the Three-and-a-Half-Billion-Year History of the Human Body and the Universe Within, Discovering the Common History of Rocks, Planets, and People. Professor Neil Shubin, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Neil? Please do. Thanks. It's great to be here. Now, I know you've told the story many, many, countlessly many times, but if you would, can you just relate as best you can the story, and I'm going to pronounce it as best I can, the story of Tik Taalik. Yeah, so it began actually uh, when I was a graduate student. I was uh, fishing around for a graduate thesis. And I, pardon the pun. Fishing around. Uh-huh. I was going to ask uh, you, yes. see what he did there? See? <laughs> you caught it. Anyway, so I was taking a course on the, the greatest hits in the history of life. It was like speed dating with one of the great problems in the you know, 4.5 billion years of the history of the planet. And the teacher that year showed a slide of the, what we knew about the fish to amphibian transition, fish to tetrapods. 
Um, and it showed a fish on top and a, a limbed animal on the bottom, you know, and I looked at that and said, whoa, that's a first class scientific problem. How did fish about to walk on land? And literally yeah, we're there, missing, we're missing something is what you were saying. To we yourself, were yes. missing a lot. Yeah. You had the critter on, you know, one critter has fins and a you know, conical head and, you know, swims in the water with gills the other creature walks on land with necks and arms and legs fingers and toes big gap and back then nobody knew what that intermediate animal was or looked like we had some good guesses there were uh, lobe finned fish these are fish that have both lungs and gills these are fish that had um, a very fleshy fin with bones inside one of which might compare to an arm bone um you know so we knew that um, Are but, you talking about the coelacanth? Or yeah, something like exactly. That? Creatures like the coelacanth, creatures like lungfish. Some of those creatures are alive today, and they have a fairly extensive fossil record that extends over like three hundred, over three hundred million years. So we knew. So coelacanths are still swimming around South of Africa. Right? They are indeed, and that was a great surprise to the scientific community when they were found. I was alive when this, and then the other one, the lungfish are jumping around Florida. They're actually in uh, three different continents. They're in the Southern continents, uh, South Africa, uh, Africa, and Australia. There are a couple different, uh, three different genera. Um, and they have lungs and gills, you know? And so we knew that, you know. That, that hold, hold it. Did they have, just a second. Is it a gill that can also lung for a while or is it a separate thing? No, here's what's really cool. Fish have lungs, okay? So the, these lungfish have true lungs. And if you look at them, they're lobed like ours. They have alveoli like ours. They have a microstructure like ours. These are lungs. And when you look at the genes that, you know, build them, they're similar to the genes that build our lungs. So these are so, versions of our lungs. But a fish has got gills, the feathery things that take oxygen out of the, I mean, crabs. That's these guys correct. Have they, have, they have gills as well. So they have gills and lungs. And we see that in lungfish. We see that in lots of other fish alive today and fish in the fossil record. So what happens is they use the gills when they're in water, right? When the oxygen content of the water is high. But then, you know, oxygen content of water can vary. Sometimes it drops really low and then they rely on their gills. Why does it vary? Oh, well, so, so for instance, it can vary seasonally because you can have rotted matter that enters the, um, enters the, let's say it's a stream and leaves fall in the stream and they decay. And as they decay, that'll reduce the amount of oxygen in the, in the mm. water. It can vary with temperature too. Um, so what you can have is seasonal variation in the levels of oxygen. And what happens is these critters use their lungs as sort of an accessory organ. You know, when the gills won't cut it, what they'll do is they'll go to the surface and gulp air. And so think of them as having both systems. And, and we see that in other species as well. So, you know, the, the fact of the matter is the more the, we look, the more we find that lungs did not arise when fish evolved to walk on land. Lungs arose eons earlier. And that's true. Okay, so, 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 you know, you already knew there's all these connections, but there wasn't the actual fossil proving what the transition was like. So that's correct. Take it. Where, where did you go from there? You that's thought, correct. Like, Somebody's got to find this. That's gonna, that person's going to be me. That's kind of what I said. Yeah, because I, I love finding fossils, and this one would be a dandy, right? So what we what you do is when you want to find these things, you look for places in the world that have three things. You look for places in the world that have rocks of the right age to answer the question, right? So we kind of know we had to be in a time period called the Late Devonian, and actually knew it more precisely. Based on the Late Devonian. That's about three hundred seventy-five million years ago, and we knew that based on other discoveries. So how do you determine the age of those rocks using rubidium strontium dating or something like that, radioactivity and certain isotopes of uh, chemical minerals kind of thing? That's correct. We use one argon-argon, argon-39, argon-40. Yeah, and that's a really good one for that age. So you could look for places in the world that have the right age rocks, and we kind of know that from geological studies. People are mapping rocks all the time, usually for economic purposes, to find oil and gas, minerals, and so forth. 
But then you look for places in the world that have not only rocks the right age, but rocks that are likely to hold the fossils of interest, you know, that were formed in the environments that, you know, likely held these critters. You can tell if like there were a swamp that formed this rock or some, or a volcano. Precisely. Right? I can tell if it's formed out of a volcano, formed in a pond, formed in an ocean, formed in a stream. So we looked for places in the world that had ancient streams and rivers formed in ancient delta systems. Is it the salt that tells you whether it was a freshwater stream or a saltwater ocean? I guess it's a detail, but... No, in this case, what you're looking at is the grains, and this grains inside the rock, how they were laid down, what the whole setting is, how continuous the formation is laterally, because, you know, oceans, you know, aren't just small, they're big. You can see a long layer, the layers that should extend for a while. So you're looking for geological markers like that, and they're pretty well described. And, you know, you can tell, like, a rock that was formed in a stream, it has cobbles and pebbles and stones. In fact, you can even tell how fast that stream was moving based on the size of those cobbles and, and how broken up they are and so forth. So, you can so you're, a, you're an evolutionary biologist, but you're doing a lot of geology here. Yeah, I had to learn it on the fly, honestly, as you know, because I wanted to do this. I had I realized I had to learn a whole lot of geology to make this happen. So, you know, so I, so I spent a lot of time with people who knew what they were doing and sort of, you know, followed them around and asked them questions and they, they were kind enough to answer. Anyway, wow. so, so um, yeah, so we, you know, we chose a particular kind of rock, rocks that were formed in ancient rivers and streams from the Devonian period, 375 million years old. And we were able to identify using geological records, interesting places. It turns out the best place to look was in the Canadian Arctic, um, up in the islands called Ellesmere Island, Melville Island, Bathurst Island. And the reason why they were perfect is the rocks were really well exposed at the surface. So we didn't have to dig deep and we can walk for miles and see them. These rocks weren't, when they were a swamp, they were somewhere else relative to the equator, for example. That's correct. Right? This is continental movement, the tectonic precisely. movement that put them up there. Precisely. Wow. These were like at like 10 degrees north latitude, you know, kind of right near the equator, at, you know, 375 million years ago. So this, we you know, what's the Canadian Arctic today with polar bears and muskox and glaciers and all that stuff? You know, it was once a tropical rainforest near the equator, right? That's, that's change in a nutshell, right? So you're looking for streams and deltas because that's a place where life might naturally move from water to land, I'm guessing. You said Devonian. Why Devonian? Why, why not a billion years earlier? It gets its name from where it was discovered. Yeah, Devon, England. Uh, the rocks were originally from Devon, England, yeah. And so we knew from previous finds that there were lots of limbed animals and rocks about 365 million years old. And there were lots of fish that kind of were beginning to look like limbed animal critters in, in rocks around 380, 385 million years old. So we figured so we wanted to yeah. be in between. And, you know, it's that's not rocket science. And so we made that it's bet. It's kind of more complicated than <laughs> yeah, rocket science. It's, in practice, it's really tough because, you know, once we decided that we had these rocks that were great in the Canadian Arctic, all of a sudden we had to get up there, right, and find it. Now, imagine being dropped in the middle of the Canadian Arctic and like, okay, where do you look? So we used satellite photos. Um, we used aerial photos to, to decide where to look. And who's we at this point? I have a team. I have my colleague, Ted Deschler, who's my partner in crime in this for you know, over 30 years. Um, I've worked with graduate students and postdocs. I've been fortunate to work with really talented people uh, on the paleontological side, uh, geologists, uh, paleontologists, uh, natural historians, you name it. And so we figured out, okay, well, we wanted to start in the Western part of the Arctic. And so we began in 1999 there. Uh, didn't find anything. <laughs> It was really a bad season. In fact, it turned out it was a colossal failure. We had 13 days spent in our tents. 
we're in the middle of an ancient ocean geologically. We were finding big sharks, nothing that would walk on land. It was a bust. So then we decided we needed to get into the ancient streams. And so that meant moving east in the Arctic. That meant moving to Ellesmere Island and, you know, geologically. So we moved to Ellesmere Island, which is further to the east, about 200 miles. And as soon as we got there, we started to find really wonderful rocks. These held lobefin, fossil lobefin fish, bits and pieces of them. We weren't finding whole skeletons. But we were finding things that were suggest telling us that, gosh, this thing's going to be here. What's a thing that suggests that? Well, we found teeth. We found partial jaws. We found bits of the head, uh, bits and pieces. And we can tell that, hey, maybe this head, this bit of the head we're seeing, maybe it's a flat-headed fish, not a conical one. Maybe it's more like a limbed animal. You know, that kind of thing. So um, what we needed were whole skeletons of these critters. So that meant finding a new place to look. We needed places that were formed in very gentle, that the rivers and streams were very gentle. And so by reading the rocks, it took us to a valley. That valley had a layer with uh, fossil skeletons of fish piled one on top of the other. One day, one of my colleagues, Steve, uh, we were digging in this layer. He said, hey, guys, what's this? Ran over to it, and there sticking out of the rock was a flat-headed fish. And I knew as soon as I saw that, this was six years of work that we had found what we were looking for. Because what it was wow. is a fish with a flat head uh, that was shaped like an early limbed animal's head. We removed it from the rock. It's about four feet long. We brought it back to the lab. We sent, subsequently found 20 more of these things. Um, How do you remove it from the rock? Gently. <laughs> with, with tiny with little dental picks. Dental picks and tiny little cobbler's hammers and tiny little chisels. And then we encase it in urethane or plaster, depending on where we work. And it comes back in a helicopter, you know, 300 miles, and then it takes a jet for another 3,000 miles south. So this is amazing. So you knew where to look, took you six years, you found it, and then what happens? Then the fun is, then you do the science. Then, you know, then we can really, kind of, and then we took it out of the rock and we compared it to other creatures. We found it had an arm. It had a forearm, had a wrist, even parts of fingers and toes. It had a neck. No fish has a neck. Um, it had a head much like a limbed animal, yet it was like a fish. It had a fishy jaw, had fishy kinds of bones, had a fishy version of a shoulder. Um, really remarkable. You know, here was, and, and this was 2005. A trial was going on in the state of Pennsylvania where people were suing to teach intelligent design creationism in the schools. And I had on my desk this thing, you know, we had to publish it in the scientific literature, but you know, that was a year of anticipation. You had what, what some might call the ultimate missing link. <laughs> it was pretty good. So here's the fundamental question. How did a fish become a land animal? Was this an animal that spent some of its time in the water, some of its time on land? And if that's true or whatever is true, how do you all know that? How did the fish end up walking on land? Right. So here's a fish, Tiktaalik, that um, has arms and legs. Let's talk about the arms. The arm can do a push-up. It clearly has a shoulder, elbow, and a wrist. That wrist has a, enables the fin to contact the ground, almost with a palm area. But it's also in a fin to allow it to swim. This creature had both lungs and gills. So it was able to live in water and walk on land. So think about how it. do you know it had lungs and gills? Because you, there's depressions for the lungs and it had a rib cage which could support moving a lung. Plus, pretty much all the critters in this part of the evolutionary tree, living and dead, had lungs. So having lungs is by no means controversial. A, a day at the Devonian office having lungs. All these fish had lungs, pretty much. Yeah. So and all these fish had you know the, all the tools to walk on land, except they're mostly living in water, maybe living in the mud flats as well. Um, it's really amazing. Stick around for more science rules after this.
Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Science Rules is back. So you've had some time to study this. So what's going on during this transitional period? I mean, life has been in the oceans for millions and millions of years. You know, why is there suddenly this pressure to move on land? And what was this thing doing on land? I mean, what, what was the advantage to it to even be there? Yeah, this is a great story. So most of the history of life, as you say, and most history of the planet was, you know, in the oceans, right? Billions of years. There, on land, there were rocks, but lichens and things like that. Because if you're in the ocean, you got a solvent to move your chem- life chemicals around. You got sunlight if you're near the surface. You don't need to support your own weight. Precisely. You're just floating around doing your oceanic thing. Okay. And you have so all you kinds of food. So start in the ocean. And there's chemicals everywhere. Chemicals, exactly. lightning storms, who knows, everything. Yes. Uh, it's a rich okay. environment for life. Um, then, probably about 400, a little more than 400 million years ago, the first plants started to invade land. And then following that, invertebrates, you know, creatures without backs. So how do plants invade land? They get washed ashore and they Mm -hmm. don't die? That's right. And then some of them with spores can can propagate on land. They project root systems on land. So early on in in this time period, the first things that hit, the first things to invade land were plants. Then came invertebrates. So by the 375, 380 million years ago, land was looking really good. It had forest-like, had shrubs, had invertebrates. So for a Who's long an period of time, a worm, a worm, insect-like insect? creatures, spider-like creatures, things like that, arthropods we call them. Um, lots of them on land. Yeah, arthropod. Who doesn't love a good arthropod? <laughs> yeah, it can be butter, juicy and tasty. You know? Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, a crab, a lobster, a lobster, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. So maybe an oyster. Uh, if you're that kind of person. Yeah, well, they have all all that stuff was around, and a lot of that was on a lot of versions of that was on land already. So when you think about what Tiktaalik and its cousins were doing at this time period, they were living in water, um, taking ventures on land. But think about what's in water at this time. I didn't tell you what else is there. There are large predators, 15 feet long, with giant teeth the size of you know, your thumb and railroad spikes. You had a real predator-rich world. Or there were no plant eaters. There were no herbivores, if you will. So it was a real fish-eat-fish world at this Hold time. It. There were no herbivorical fish? In ocean, there certainly was. But in freshwater, there were some small filter feeders, but there weren't any giant ones. Most, wow. most of this was fish-eat-fish. So if it's a fish-eat-fish world, predatory intense, think about that as water. On land, you had no competitors, no predators, but all kinds of juicy food sources. So compare water with lots of predators, which is kind of you know, uh, dangerous to be in, uh, to uh, land, which is, uh, which is loaded with opportunity, which is loaded with food sources. But more importantly, um, creatures like Tiktaalik already had all the tools they needed to walk on land. 
These creatures had wrists, they had arms, they had legs, they had lungs, they had necks. They were doing, they evolved all that stuff to live in water. Such, but when the opportunity came to invade land, they were they were ready to go. They were good to go. So well, hold on, th- this is a really cool idea that they already had these things that were useful for life on land, but they didn't evolve them for life on land. They weren't anticipating a need. So w- what use were those things in water that they turned out also also to be useful on land? Walking on the water bottom, supporting oneself, supporting yourself in the, in the shallows. Animals walking on the water bottom are pretty common. And you, the head was such, it was flat with eyes on top. The critter could look up. So you all predicted that this animal would exist, right? And you predicted where it would be found. And you went and found it. That is flipping amazing. But how do you know it didn't work the other way, that there wasn't some other land creature that went into the ocean or into the stream? Well, we knew that happened when whales and when the ancestors of whales entered the water, you know, millions of years later. Right. That's a whole lot later. Yeah. So we knew at this time. So if you look at the fossil record before Tiktaalik, everything was in the water, everything. There were, you know, in terms of vertebrates, in terms of creatures with backbones, you had small fish, you had big fish, you had armored fish, you had some filter feeding fish, mostly predatory fish. In that kind of ecosystem, really, there are three strategies. You can either, when you have a predator intense world, and we see that today, you have, you know, you can get big because big fish eat little fish. You can get armor, which is typically what happens in those predatorial, you know, um, settings, or you can get out of the way. That is, you can find strategies to avoid those predators. And so in this case, one of the clear strategies was like likely going on to, onto the shallows and, and the mudflats. So now, ha- can you give me an example of a creature that gets out of the way right now? An octopus hides in something or other? Look at a mudskipper. Look at a fish. There's fish that actually live in the mudflats for 24 hours. They're rafe and fish, a mudskipper. Uh, it can breathe air through its skin. It avoids predators and finds food sources today. Um, by of getting out of the water and living in the mudflats. And it has all kinds of adaptations to do it. It doesn't have arms and legs like ours. It doesn't have lungs like ours. It's doing it in a very mudskipper way, but it's avoiding the fray by living on land or in the, in the shallows in a way that Tiktaalik and its relatives like they did. Something that's always amazed me is the flying fish. Is the flying fish fly to get away from predators? Yeah, is that oftentimes, thing? definitely. And there are many, str- you know, you think about what happens in water when you have these schools of predators that approach the bait fish. It's a bloodbath, you know? And so any strategy to get away from that is huge, right? I it's mean, a bloodbath, <laughs> Corey, a bloodbath. Bloodbath and beyond, as I like to say. A lot of the creatures you're talking about, they're found all over the world. Like Tiktaalik, you found in one particular place. Uh, you know, is this this transition from water to land? Was this going on everywhere, and that's just the only place you could find it, or is there something special about that spot and what's now the Canadian Arctic? No, I don't think there's anything special about the Canadian Arctic. I think it was what was special about it was we had the right rocks, right, of the right age, and all that. But the other creatures like Tiktaalik have since been described from Eastern Europe, um, from Quebec. Um, there's potentially one from uh, Australia. Now, remember these continents, which are one so from sim- Australia. Well, potentially there's some there's some scales and some some isolated bones that suggested maybe a Tiktaalik-like creature was there. But remember these continents, which are so far away today, weren't that far away 375 million years ago from each other. They were at the equator, all clumped together. So, you know, so what was happening in the Canadian Arctic was pretty much adjacent to what was happening in Eastern Europe. Uh, and Quebec, and likely not that far from uh, from Australia. So, yeah, no, there's nothing geographically special about the Canadian Arctic other than its rocks were perfect for finding this fossil. Now, there's something you mentioned before that I still that I want to drill down on a little bit more. You said that you know, before 400 million years ago or thereabouts, 
there was pretty much not much going on on land. There was, there was nothing to eat. There was no reason to be there. The Earth is four and a half billion years old. Life appears to be almost four billion years old. So land was just kind of like barren with nothing going on for 90% of the history of this planet. Microbes. Think of microbes. They microbes own the earth, let's face it. You know, they were on land. You know, you had probably lichen-like systems on land. Um, you certainly had some sort of mosses that you know, the mosses-like creatures that were on land for a little bit of time before that. But for a long period of time, no. I mean, you know, remember, you know, multicellular creatures. The first multicellular creatures were about a billion years old, right? Um, the earliest creatures with, uh, you know, an animal body plan, you know, probably about 600 million years old. You know, so really it wasn't until fairly recently in the history of life that, you know, that the animals gained multicellularity, they gained animal body plans. So, you know, it wasn't soon after the origin of all these different things. You throw out the expression animal body plan, something that's always fascinated me is uh, you meet a dog or a, a rat or a bat. Everybody's got four arms, and, uh, counting arms and legs. Everybody's got two pair, bilateral symmetry, all that stuff. So how did those sort of things come about? What's that expression? Phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny or something like that? What is that? Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, which is some of it, you know, it's a little taught in schools up until about 20, you know, 15 years ago. Ontogeny is development from egg to adult. Recapitulates phylogeny, which is evolutionary history. So basically the idea that, um, that during an animal's development, it was thought to track its evolutionary history. It's occasionally true. We'll see it with some structures. So you'll see ontogeny recapitulate phylogeny in the development of our kidneys, for instance. Uh, they go through a jawless fish stage, a, a jawed fish stage, an amphibian stage, and so forth. But for most structures, you don't see that anymore. But to get to your question about arms and legs, forearms and four legs, you know, the first appendages are really not the paired appendages. They're the dorsal appendages, the unpaired appendages. So when you think of a fish, think about a shark for a second. You know, they have paired appendages, paired front, paired rear, but they also have tails, which are a kind of appendage, but they also have dorsal fins. And it turns out the most primitive appendage were, were the median fins, the unpaired fins, the dorsal okay, fins. Okay, hang on a second. Hang um, on a second. When I think of a dorsal fin, the shark fin coming towards you through the water and you're going to die. <laughs> okay. When I think of that, I think it's bilaterally symmetrical. I mean, if, if you look at it nose on, it's the same left and right. But you're saying that's a different structure from what I would call pectoral fins. Correct. Uh, down, okay, okay. And that's you, do you see that in the genes kind of thing? Most definitely. We see it in the genes. So what we'll see is you can look at that, like those, uh, that, that unpaired dorsal fin. It's just a single fin sitting on the top like a sail, right? Turns out if you look at the fossil record and if you look at development, that's the most primitive thing. And so here's what's interesting when we learn from molecular biology. There are a couple of really cool things we learn about genes and how that relates here. Is that many of the genes that build the fins of the dorsal fin, they're also building the, the paired fins, like the pectoral fins, the front ones, and the hind ones, the pelvic ones. So the idea is that in evolution, what you have is genes and developmental processes arise to make an organ. Let's say it's this dorsal fin. Right, but then they're co-opted to make new structures. It's like somebody to make to make the paired fins, uh, and and so it's like somebody develops a recipe for one use, and then it's redeployed elsewhere. And we see that again and again in evolution. So, so I think there's a very, a very important point I want to clarify to our listeners here, which is that when evolutionary biologists use the word primitive, they mean something somewhat different than the rest of us do. They don't mean that it's kind of crude and not you know hasn't 
you know, it hasn't been refined and perfected yet. Could you describe what, what you mean by primitive? Because I, I think it's, it's sort of helpful to understand this larger discussion. Right. So primitive things can be really complica- complex. It doesn't mean they're not complex. It means they're ancestral. So the ancestral pattern, the one, the common ancestor of all of us. So the common ancestor of sharks, fish, and people, and birds, and lizards, that common ancestor was a fish-like creature that had a unpaired fin, a dorsal fin, but not paired fins. You know, and so, so do humans have a dorsal fin? We no, have we a don't. The, so the uh, we have we don't have dorsal fins. We just have paired appendages. So the front and the back, arms and legs. So if you look at most fish, like sharks, and most fish that are swimming in the aquarium today, they have all kinds of fins. They have paired fins. They have unpaired fins. They have tails. If you look at fish like Tiktaalik rosea, the critter we found in the Arctic, it only has paired fins. You know, so so somewhere in evolutionary history between other fish and Tiktaalik, the unpaired fins, the dorsal fins were lost. And, and we carry that history inside of us today. We don't have unpaired appendages sticking at our back, you know, like a shark. Um, that, and that we can trace that to critters like Tiktaalik. And that's true with everything that has arms and legs. None of us have unpaired appendages. Okay, so are you guys inferring some mechanical advantage, some fluid mechanical, I can swim better with or without a dorsal fin for Tiktaalik? Yeah, I think we think a dorsal fin probably got in the way. A lot of fluid um, modeling suggests that if you have a dorsal fin, you can't move from side to side very easily in shallow freshwater environments, which would be necessary for something like Tiktaalik. So losing so the that smaller fin, your fin, the faster you might be able to find food and, and escape and do all these fabulous exactly. things. And if it hadn't if it hadn't been that way, humans might have a you know a fifth arm growing out of the middle of your back. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, it wouldn't <laughs> so, have been bad actually sometimes. But we do have tail bones, right? Our primate buddies have t- tails and things, but that's different setup. Totally different setup. So when you think about a tail of a fish, it has um, fin rays. It has the rays. Look, look at a fish fin. There's Most of the fin yeah. are rays. They're like little spicules. That's what above. they call them, the little, the little yeah. uh, get-in-your-throat bones. Yeah. Exactly. And the rays are make a lot of the tail. We don't have those. Now, we have bones that correspond to primate tails. We have a, a series of um, a vertebrae called the co- coccygeal vertebrae, coccyx. Look, if you look at the very base of our spine, we have tiny, tiny, tiny little residual tail bones. You know? Um, and some people actually have more of them. We'll stick out a little bit more. I, I think one out of 10,000 people have a condition where they have a, a proto a version of a tail. Can we please play this voicemail? Because this is going to get to this fundamental question, Neil, I would love for you to address. Hey, Bill Nye. I was just wondering, through the evolutionary process, how do individual organs, such as the heart and lungs, form without the other? Because, like, it, you don't really need a heart if you don't have lungs, and the same is true for lungs, like, vice versa. So, did they both form from this, from a individual genetic mutation and then get spread? Yeah, it's a question we hear all the time. You know, how, basically, how does evolution know? How does it know? It's well, evolution mutation? doesn't know anything. So, in this case, we know that hearts actually formed first. There's no doubt about it. We have all kinds of critters with hearts that don't have lungs. You know, How so, do you determine a fossil, a solid rock thing, had a soft heart? Um, well, you never find that. So when I'm looking at living – so there's when you think about the record we have to reconstruct evolution, we have a couple – a few really important things. The first is we have the fossil record. 
We have the bodies of animals that are alive today. We can analyze the DNA of animals that are alive today and make a evolutionary tree from that. And I can show you that we share a distant ancestor with sharks, a very distant ancestor with sharks. We share a more common ans recent ancestor with you know, primates and things like that. So we can use living creatures and their DNA to understand evolutionary history. And we can also look at the embryological record. We look and we can look at their, their development. So what we can do is we can know for, you know, with to a fact, uh, looking at you know the evolutionary tree based on critters that are alive today, and then plugging in fossils as well, that uh, hearts evolved well before uh, lungs. Look at sharks. Sharks have hearts but no lungs. Look at many fish. They have hearts, but many of them don't have lungs. Some do. Um, we have jawless fish, lampreys and hagfish, which have no jaws. We have no appendages, but they have hearts but no lungs. Um, so we know for a fact that uh, hearts appeared well before lungs. And so the trick for the evolution of lungs was to, you know, to get the wiring together to allow blood vessels to supply the lung, you know, with, you know, with, with oxygen, you know, with, with blood and, and then have that blood returned to the body. And so what happened here is not necessarily the, those organs having to appear together. One organ appeared before the other, but it's really kind of changing the wiring, co-opting things, repurposing them in evolution. That's the biggest thing. So think about it this way the origin of a structure is very different from its later evolution and that's the case here with uh, with hearts and lungs and so forth so you're saying that everything what's a thing we have an eye the lungs and a heart you're saying they these things started out as something else exactly and oftentimes the genes that build them built something else first you know so the genes that build our arms and legs were originally building you know fish fins even before that they were building the backs of fish so things arise in one context and are co-opted and repurposed to make to, for use in another, which is kind of like the, the, the rule of evolution. You know, and it applies to structures, it applies to genes. I mean, if you think lungs arose to help animals breathe on land, or feathers arose to help animals fly, you'd be in good company, but you'd also be entirely wrong. <laughs> and we've known that for yeah, centuries. Yeah. And that's the case with genes as well. Genes and organs arise in one context and are repurposed for use uh, in others. So what were feathers doing before they started flying? Well, first they weren't being used for fight. They were probably used for thermoregulation, right? Down, down's a great, you know, insulator. Uh, but also likely courtship displays. Now we don't know for sure, but when you one of the breakthroughs, scientific breakthroughs, technological breakthroughs of the last fifteen years, it was it's been the ability to analyze fossils to tell what the color pattern of the feathers of the dinosaurs likely were, which is really cool. How is that? How yeah, they done? use these chromatophores. They use these. Uh, they use. They 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 can analyze some of the chemicals. Chromatophores. These are like little color packets. In yeah, the little color packets in the feathers that they can then uh, analyze and and sort of make some inferences about what kind of colors these things have. And we know for a fact that you know if you look at birds today, those colors have a purpose. They're either used uh, for displays for courtship displays, or they're used to um, for you know predator prey relationships. So that last caller got to something that I've wondered about all the time. You look at life on Earth, and there are certain similarities that you see over and over again. You know, the creatures have limbs, they've got heads, they've got eyes, they've got you know, hearts and lungs. Um, are these just sort of generic solutions that life needs? Like if, you, if we go to an alien planet, we find complex life, are we likely to find, you know, Maybe the, the bits and pieces are a little different, but we see the same basic kind of thing. Yeah, awesome question. And it gets to the point, how inevitable are the results of evolution, right? Exactly. Rand, it's really awesome. Exactly. All right, so at one level, you'd think, well, natural, you know, evolution by natural selection, you know, purely random, random chance, random mutations, all that stuff. But let's look at the outcome here. 
look at how the tree of life, if we look at evolution, again and again and again, we see the same invention appearing independently in different species. You know, it's it, to the point where it's, you know, I, I study salamanders for part of my research. We see the same limb patterns, the same patterns of the skull appearing independently in salamanders evolving in North America, salamanders evolving in Central America. Uh, just take a larger example, look at uh, the mammalian fauna of Australia, the marsupials of Australia, and compare them to, you know, the mammals on other continents. And what has Australia done? They've basically mimicked the evolution of mammals elsewhere. And this has been done independently. They're 100 million years separate. But there's the marsupial mole, there's the marsupial rat, the marsupial gliding squirrel. Okay, so hang on. So Australia's extant fauna got going uh, 100 million years later than everybody else? The mammalian one. They've been separated from the rest of the, you know, the rest of the mammalian world for 100 million years. And they've evolved oh, similar okay. strategies. The amazing thing yeah. is they've evolved similar strategies. So again and again and again, we see this. And so I, I tend to think there are elements of evolution that are random, but many of the outcomes aren't. And the reason for that is a couple. Number one is there are certain physical necessities you got to have, right? If you're going to fly, you need some sort of wing right? There's just no way, or a jet engine. And it's hard to do a jet engine or a propeller. And it's hard to do those biologically. A wing is a great way to go. The, um, the, the, the next thing is, one thing we've learned over 40 years of molecular biology is that animals as distant as flies, worms, fish, and people share common genes to build their bodies. That the genetic toolkit that builds the bodies of people is shared with flies, worms, and fish. Versions of the same genes do very similar things in these creatures. Um, so think about it this way. If you have a common process to build things and common materials, the outcomes will be likely very similar from time to time. So, you know, the starting point is often very shared. We share this base toolkit to build bodies, you know, in many different creatures. So it's not unusual to expect, not, not too far to stretch to think that the outcomes will be the same. So this case of independent evolution of similar things points to some aspects of evolution have a degree of inevitability to them. Science Rules will be right back. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. You're listening to Science Rules. Can you help our audience understand why you all point out that everybody has a common ancestor? It's one of the most powerful notions in science. What's beautiful about it is that Darwin proposed it, and Wallace proposed it back in the 1800s, knew nothing about genes, knew nothing about DNA. It was amazing. And now that we have DNA and proteins and developmental biology and gene networks and the ability to study them, it only confirms that you know, life shares a common history. So the family tree that extends from me to my biological parents and their biological parents and their biological parents, that tree extends to the rest of life on Earth. That is so incredibly powerful and predictive because if I know the place 
of a creature on the tree of life. It's just like knowing somebody's family history going into a doctor's office. I can tell you certain things about it. You know, I mean, it's just wonderful. Um, and, and that. So how do you know that, for example, life didn't start two different ways, five different ways? Well, life may have. Life may have started many different times and been wiped out. Right. But the critters we see now all descend from a calm. So you might have many false starts. Right. You could have had it happen. The asteroids hit. Remember, the early phase of the Earth, there was all kinds of stuff going on. You know, so. So let me ask you this. How do you think li- our DNA style life got started? Oh, I, that's a million dollar question. So there are a lot of different theories out there. And I, you know, the, um, but I keep on, you know, look, I'm at the University of Chicago. Yuri and Miller did their experiment in the glass vial where they hit it with light. Tell us about that. Famous experiment. Big glass thing. Yeah, Yeah. big glass contraption. Stanley Miller set it up at the advice of Harold Urey, who was a great chemist. Um, You know, put some, some, some concoctions in a, in a glass jar. Um, Supposed to simulate the conditions on the early earth. Right. So, you know, he made a primordial soup, you know, and hit it with lightning, a little electric shock from Chicago Power Company. And out comes, you know, various building blocks of life, you know, amino acids and things like that and or proto amino acids and it was really remarkable you know it was the first time to show that you can have self-assembly under the right conditions of some of the building blocks of life now other people people still do the uri miller experiment oh yeah and they're doing it in much more sophisticated ways in fact they're they're finding um when they do it with even more complex um you know primordial soups they can get purine versions of purines and pyrimidines which are you know components of uh, nucleic acids and so you know, I tend to think it's a matter of time before somebody does a, a complex Yuri Miller experiment and they get a replicating molecule. So I'm a, I think self-assembly in the right conditions uh, is very powerful. And it's powerful at multiple, a lot of levels. It's powerful at the level of macromolecules like, like DNA and RNA. Um, but it's also powerful at the level of cellular structures like membranes and vesicles and things like that. So I don't know physics and chemistry under the right conditions can do some marvelous things. To a lot of people, this is still somehow troubling that it's all, you know, it's it's chance and it's chemicals and it's, you know, it sort of takes away any sense of humans being special. But when you talk about it, you're, you clearly feel differently about it. Uh, I mean, what does it mean to you at that sort of more emotional level? I think the connections we share with the rest of life on our planet is one of the most beautiful things that there is. That is, you know, when you think about the Nobel Prizes in medicine and physiology, you know, the ones that have gone to basic human health, who have they gone to? They've gone to people working on flies. They've gone to people working on mice. They've gone to people working on corn. They've gone to two Nobel Prizes were ordered five people working on Cenorhabditis elegans, a tiny little worm the size of a comma on a piece of paper. Yet that little worm is telling us about how our genes are turned on and off, how our cells are programmed to die, and what goes wrong in human diseases like cancer. I can't imagine anything more powerful than that, that we're, you know, the tiniest little, simplest, most humble little organisms are providing cues to our future. And the only reasons that's possible is because of these deep evolutionary connections that we share to them. So I see these connections not as just something to be, to run from and, you know, that the world is meaningless. I see it as deeply beautiful. And I, in fact, that connection extends to the physical world too, that we're here because of asteroids that hit the earth. We're here because of cosmic cycles that have caused the glaciers to rise and fall. You know, we're here because of, you know, the beautiful um, processes that happen inside of stars that make the atoms inside of us. So far from seeing that as something threatening, I see it as something deeply beautiful and connecting. And the, the, those connections I find deeply uh, aesthetically powerful. Why is it nobody's got wheels? 
That's Why aren't question. there wheeled giraffes out there? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Some some designs I think are really really, you know. So there are certain contingent things that have to happen for designs to appear, and um, you know, wheels are one of them that we've not seen. There are others as well. So we don't see jet engines, um, you know, with complex parts. Um, what about uh, well, squid and those guys squirt around. Yeah, they do squirt around. They have no a version turbine. of a jet. Yeah, they have a version of a turbine. But there's um, no spinning. There's no, no, there's no spinning process. Things they're spinning. Things I think are very challenging for evolution. There are a few things sort of have gears. And there are a few things that yeah. sort of have springs. Yeah, and some things have, but you know, the whole set is sometimes you know we don't see it achieved by evolution, uh, and if we have, it's in it's a rare you know maybe some microbes. But that touches on one important thing. You need precursors. So sometimes, you know, if the precursors aren't there, like the precursor states, you're not going to get the end state. This is the thing that Richard Dawkins talks about is everything has to come from something else. Trying to make a jet engine out of a piston engine, it has to, you have to be able to do it with all the intermediate steps working. There has to be a precursor that would somehow lead to it. That's right. And he talks about the crazy thing where the, the, uh, a nerve that operates the giraffe larynx has to go all the way down around its around its heart. Is that right? Around the bottom the of the recurrent its laryngeal nerve. It has a long course. Yeah. yeah. And so it's just um, because it had to, in order to work, everything before it had to work. All right. Let me ask you this. 18% of Americans uh, reject evolution outright. 48% say, oh, they accept human evolution as long as there was a higher power that directing it. What do you say to them? Well, you know, people have, uh, it's really hard to get beyond people's preconditions, pre, you know, pre-existing biases. You know, if you Speaking were raised- of precursors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if your precursors were such that you're threatened by it, uh, or th even scientific reasoning in general, I mean, look, let's face it, evolution is not alone here. Um, you know, rational thinking, uh, scientific reasoning is something of a threat to many people. And in fact, if you look at the scientific process, what we're, you know, what's happened under, you know, COVID-19 and the coronavirus, you know, you're seeing science accelerated at a very rapid pace, so much so that today's truths are next week's falsehoods and vice versa. People what's an example of that in coronavirus? Well, in coronavirus masks, you know, we were given a CDC recommendation about masks in February. Don't wear masks. Don't wear masks. It was all over Twitter. And then all of a sudden we get all the data on masks, you know, and that applies to many different areas of, uh, of science, genetically modified organisms. There are many people who, you know, won't touch them, but despite the fact that everything they eat has been genetically modified in one way or another. For um, millennia. Yeah, yeah, for millennia. It's what humans have done. And so I think, you know, the way, the ways I've been working it and when I give talks is I talk about the discovery stories in evolution. You know, I talk, the Tiktaalik story for me works very well because when I'm out there, I'm talking about the predictive power of science and the outcome of that is showing the results of evolution. So I used a knowledge of evolution to make a prediction to find an evolutionary precursor. So what are you doing next? So we got a lot going on. So we, our last expeditions were to Antarctica. So we're, you know, we're working through the fossils that we found there. My lab is mostly molecular biology. So we're doing molecular biology of fins and limbs, asking the question, what are the genes that make fingers and toes? What are they doing in fins? Turns out we have those genes. And now you had, you found a new one. Is that right? We did. And it's just between us. Okay. We'll just keep it among the three of us. Um, yeah. But I, yeah. Anyone <laughs> who's hearing this. <laughs> but yeah. So um, we do anyone. have a, uh, it's, it's embedded in a rock. Um, we have a CT scanner downstairs and before the where's, rock. what's the rock? Where'd you get the rock? Um, oh, so basically in, 2000, <laughs> in 2004, <laughs> when we uh, found the original Tiktaaliks, I, I found a rock that had some Tiktaalik scales on it, but nothing else. And then maybe, and maybe a little piece of jaw. And so I collected it 
and wrapped it up and it got lost in all the frenzy with Tiktaalik. And, you know, before the lockdown, I, we were going through the collection. It turns out that this thing is a new kind of Tiktaalik. It's either a baby Tiktaalik or a new species of Tiktaalik. It's smaller. So you, how big you, is you this You threw thing? it in a CT scanner and then you could see that this thing was inside the rock that you just yeah. had sitting in your, in your closet somewhere? Yeah, exactly. It had a fin inside it. <laughs> a whole fin, an entire fin. So basically, we uh, threw it in the CT scanner before the lockdown. How did, okay, but, 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 but we throw it in the CT scanner. I presume we're, we're gentle with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a rock, but you can oh, be careful. So this is, is it the CT scan? I, I broke my wrist. Is it that CT scan? No, you wouldn't have a wrist after we put you in this CT scanner. This one's okay. a high. This one works at about 300 kilovolts, um, which is pretty high. It's a material CT scanner. It's the kind of CT scanner people use for, you know, looking at uh, aircraft fuselages. And, Ceramics. Yeah, yeah, ceramic, yeah stuff the like turbine that. blades. Yeah, exactly. So where is this thing? Uh, this device. This device is downstairs in the basement here at the University of Chicago, and we routinely use it along with others to look at. You know, we could basically basically take a block, scan inside that block, and see whatever bones inside. And that's exactly what we did. Here we had this block with scales on it, nothing else showing really. Uh, I knew it was associated with the jaw because I had found a jaw next to the block. So twice. the scales on the outside. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then and your experience, you, you rock hammered so many freaking rocks. You reckon, oh, that's a scale, but you got right there is a scale. You can just do that. Yeah. And I knew it was a, I knew it was a tiktaalik scale as well. And so I was like, okay, new tiktaalik scale is good to have for the collection. Uh, but I didn't see anything else in the rock. <laughs> so we scan inside it and it turns out there's this fin and there's some jaw bones and things like that. Now it's not a whole skeleton. It's a partial skeleton, but it's small and it's exciting. So it's, that's, that's kept so us that could, active. That, that, it could be baby tiktaalik. That's what we hope. You know, you had baby shark. Now you have baby tiktaalik. Yeah. So, yeah. So how, where'd the word tiktaalik come from, by the way? Yeah. So it's, uh, it was a collaboration we had with the local Inuit. We, it's a, a Inuktuk word for uh, large freshwater fish. Um, and we had worked there and we'd worked with Inuit. We had Inuit kids work with us on our expeditions uh, and we wanted to involve them as much as possible. So they uh, were responsible for the name. And so we- It's cool. And plus, I guarantee you, somebody who's grew, who lives there knows something you don't. Oh, I tell yeah. you that right yeah. now. Don't dig over here, guy. Go over <laughs> there. Yeah. I mean, there's, no, there's a lot of local knowledge, a, a ton of, of local knowledge. And yeah. and it was a great pleasure to work with them. And so it was, it was, it was once we knew we had something really cool, we, uh, you know, they were the first pe people to know about it. Uh, and we asked them to come up with the name. Okay. So hold on. So you, you've got, uh, you got molecular biology going on. You got a new TikTok going on. Anything else big? Or are you figuring out how life first burrowed into the <laughs> ground or flew in the air or what, 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 you, what else, anything else big you're working on? Well, the other big thing we're working on, I have a lot of number, it's not just me, it's member, I have 12 people in my lab. So, um, you know, I work with them. Um, the other big thing we're interested in is regeneration and the evolution of regeneration. So I have yeah. two post Lobster here. claw. Yeah, yeah. Well, think about a salamander. If its limbs bit off, what happens? It grows it back. And it grows it back, muscles, nerves, bones, the whole thing, right? How does that happen? When um, you say right, really? That's true? Really? Okay. That's true. Yeah. And, <laughs> and same why thing, don't we do that? That's, that's the million-dollar question, right? Folks in the lab here been working on uh, other creatures. Do fish regenerate? It turns out most fish regenerate, most aquatic creatures regenerate their fins. Some don't, but many do. Um, regenerate? Does a shark regenerate fins? And then they're one that doesn't do so great. They'll, they'll do some healing. They'll do a little bit of cartilage repair, but they don't regenerate the whole fin. But many fish will. So it turns out that ability to regenerate is actually kind of already present before salamanders. A lot of creatures have it. And so, 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 
a fish regenerates the 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 rays, those cartilaginous uh, sticks. The rays. Yep, they can do the sticks. They can do some of them can even do their hearts, spinal cords, parts of their brain. Um, Just yeah. think, everybody, Wait, what regenerating it would mean. the brain, <laughs> yeah, spinal cord. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to get one. So uh, everybody just think what it would mean if you had uh, heart damage, lung damage, and you could regenerate. If you guys, Neil, could unlock the secret, you would change the world. <laughs> and it would be so efficient, you wouldn't have a, you know incompatible transplant drugs. You wouldn't have any of that. My goodness. No, it's all real. that by studying by studying uh, creatures that run from the streams onto the land. <laughs> Bill, Bill. Corey. I hear something. It's, it's sounds of the natural world. What? That's so loud. Yeah, so electrical, so thunderous, so Thunderous? Lightning. lightning? So lightning. It could be time. Thunderous, lightning, lightning round, lightning round, Neil, lightning questions, lightning answers from you. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay, Neil, what do you think about the mythic missing link between humans and apes? I hate it because <laughs> there are many missing links. It's not a single one. It's many. <laughs> yeah, we have a common ancestor. There's not just one. It's just crazy making. What's your favorite fossil? Do you have a favorite fossil? Yeah, Procellaris bitis, which uh, you'd think tiktaalik, but it's not. My favorite fossil is Procellaris bitis, the earliest frog. We discovered it in the uh, Navajo Indian Reservation in the 90s. And how old is the earliest frog? 200 million years. So what was so cool about that fossil? That it was uh, it was a proto frog. Everybody knows what a frog looks like. You know, it's got a short body, flat head, you know, big fat head, and long limbs. This was a this had a, this was a proto frog. It had a slightly longer body. It had a different kind of pelvis, and slightly shorter limbs. So it was yeah, it, kind of, it I wasn't like fifty feet tall with long fangs. <laughs> no. And I know okay. we're in That's the lightning room, but you had to learn anatomy too. You've had to learn anatomy, geology, chemistry, all these things, right? molecular biology, all that. Yeah, science is not just one discipline, right? It's um. You know, to, to, if you want to answer the questions, the big questions of science, you need a big toolkit. Right on. All right. Would the world be better off if we had just stayed as fish? If we had just stayed as fish, would everything be better? It would be way better, except we wouldn't be here. We'd be fish, and so we'd be better, by definition. <laughs> if you could visit any time in the history of the earth, let's say, or the history of life, is there a time you would want to visit? The early Cambrian period, about 530 million years ago, when the first animals were around, right after the, you know, the Cam what's called the Cambrian explosion, we have the first creatures, the all kinds of different bodies, you know, some of which were like this our, is a Burgess shale kind Burgess of shale, yeah, and be, you know, basically I'd wander around in the in the little in the margins of the ocean, in the tidal flats, and look at all the critters and marvel at that, knowing what they did. Okay, if you were doing any other kind of science, what would it be? Geology, uh, astronomy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it'd be astronomy. I think I just love astronomy. I look at the stars. And Comet Neowise blew me away, you know, this summer. So, yeah. Oh, good. You went out and saw it. Good. I did, oh, yeah. So beautiful. I got weathered out. Yeah, okay. So, let's pretend I'm a creationist. Here I am. Bill, the raving creationist. Bill, you raving creationist. What are you doing on this podcast? Yes, Convince me that evolution is real. Is that even possible? Well, we can see evolution happening today. We can see it in microbes. We can see it in viruses. We can see it in fish. We can trace. I mean, it can actually, it's not like no inference there. I can watch evolution happening in populations today. Furthermore, I can use the tools that, you know, that we use to tell our family history, and I can show that our family history extends to other creatures on the planet. Furthermore, I can design expeditions to find intermediates between great forms of life with just, some, just knowing something about evolution itself. We could find ancestors of whales. We can find ancestors of limbed animals. We can find ancestors of fish. 
So, you know, you think about predictions and testing predictions and observations, we can do all that with evolution. Did you enjoy or hate the movie, The Shape of Water, won all these awards? Oh, I liked the it. The lizard guy. Yeah, yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I loved it's it. Got, it's got a fish man in it. Yeah, of course. It's fish man. Metamorphosis. So are the lizard life. people, should we have had lizard people if there hadn't been an asteroid? We might have had, you know, yes, we might have had, we might have had a bipedal lizard with big brains, you know, I mean, it's entirely possible, because that's, you think about what reptiles were doing before the asteroid hit, they were, they were all the large herbivores, large carnivores, all the stuff that mammals were later to do, you know, so. Entirely so maybe so we wouldn't about, have stayed fish. Maybe we'd be around here as as lizard people with feathers, feather feathered lizard people. Hey Neil, this has been a, just a blast, man. Thank you. It's Thank fun. you so much, everybody. Our guest today has been Professor Neil Shubin. He is a paleontologist and an evolutionary biologist, and a going along with a geologist, a going along with it micro, and he's a tiktologist. He's all these things. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Remember. When it comes to discovering the evolutionary links that connect all living things, Corey Neal, science rules. If you like science rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Be sure to look at my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. And I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question at askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell, the very same. Hey, just doing my part. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Science Science Rules. rules. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Wear a mask when you're in public. And if you are testing positive, keep track of where you were and whom you met. Let's save ourselves, people. It's not magic, it's science. Stitcher. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.